1: Inside Sources. Inside Sources on KSL News Radio. Well, welcome back to Inside Sources. I'm Jason Perry with the Institute of Politics, joined by Morgan Lancotti, Natalie Tippett's. Uh, we've really been covering a broad range of topics today. Want to get into one that this program has already covered a bit, even to the extent of interviewing the candidates for mayor to see what they think about it. But we've got to take a moment for a, a different angle on the issue of scooters. Uh, we see them all around uh, the city. I know uh, we at the University of Utah see them dropped off at all kinds of places on campus. Uh, students are using them and of course as we as we think about those scooters, kind of that last mile transportation is is something that that people need that has has you know, been difficult to get to those particular spots but uh, there are some implications that we maybe don't talk about as much as we should, which is why we are so glad to have the great Shelby Hinsey here with us today, producer, uh, TV producer here at KSL, great friend of ours also. But you have a unique perspective on this particular issue that we just have to discuss. Shelby, thanks for being with us. Why don't you give us that perspective?
4: Yeah, Jason, thanks for having me. Um, so I use a power wheelchair and, and I, I think scooters are awesome. I mean, obviously I'm not using them. Um, But it's great for that, like you said, that last mile, um, getting people around, um, just getting people to where they need to go. For me, transportation is a very important issue. Um, But something that I have noticed while walking around downtown um, is people don't always think about where they leave those scooters. Um, They'll leave them in the middle of the sidewalk, um, sometimes on the curb cuts in front of the buttons that you need to, you know, push the sidewalk. Um, and so that just really can make it difficult for me to get around. Um, and, some, and for somebody maybe who's blind, you know, they're going to trip over those. There's all sorts of implications for people with disabilities when you don't take a second to think about, you know, where am I leaving this scooter? And it's not like I can just move it. Some people might be able to. That, for me personally, is difficult. Um, So just thinking about you know where am I leaving this scooter after I've you know gotten to where I need to go or had a little bit of fun? Am I leaving it in a place that is not going to be in the way for anybody?
1: Well, just such an amazingly important perspective. You know, sometimes we just jump off the scooters and we kind of hope they park it in the right place, but not many people I think are are considering. I may be blocking an entire sidewalk for someone in a wheelchair or someone who's blind, someone that really uses a sidewalk and cannot get around it. Right. What are some of your thoughts about who should be enforcing some laws on this? Because we already know that these scooters are not supposed to be on the sidewalk.
4: Right. Um, that's a great question. I mean, first and foremost, I think if you just take a second, I mean, we shouldn't have to enforce something like this. You know, I I just wish that people would have kind of some of the spatial awareness and awareness of maybe people outside of them just themselves to say "Hmm, maybe I should move this over or take it down the block a little bit further or something like that um but of course like I am one if I see him on the sidewalk I'll like take a picture of it and be like look at this jerk who parked there and put it on Twitter do a little Twitter shaming um that obviously doesn't do any good um but I think really I mean I know that the the mayor's office and the department of transportation within the mayor's office is really working on some of these scooter regulations. And what does that look like? Um, I think that that's something that, um, I know on the scooters, they have some stickers that, you know, have some guidelines. And if that's something as well, or maybe something that pops up on the app that says, Hey, thanks for returning the scooter. Make sure it's not in a place that is going to impede traffic for other people. Um, just those little reminders, and hopefully people can just be a little aware. Yeah, so true.
0: Shelby, we all love a good Twitter shame now and then. But if we see a scooter that's blocking a sidewalk or blocking an entrance, um, I mean, we get, to some degree, some of us can move them. Sometimes it's hard if those wheels are locked. If you take a picture, what else can we do other than trying to Twitter shame? Is there a place where people can report and try to you know, have some positive change made?
4: Yo, know, that is a great question, and I do not know the answer to that. Um, I'm sure that, I mean, if you do see one and you are able to move it, that would be awesome. Just you know, scoot it over to the side a little bit. Um, but to be perfectly honest, I I don't know the answer to that, and that's maybe something that we should be looking at as well. Is there? Um, I'm gonna look it up somewhere. You can, yeah. Can you report that somewhere? I have no idea.
1: Well, it's interesting because we we know from some articles written in the press just this last week that complaints such as this, but also people just cruising down the sidewalk. uh, Totally. Causing some injuries. They're going super fast. uh, But also it it has prompted the city uh, to send emails to the scooter companies just this week saying things are going to change. Right. I guess they have to. Right. This is just such a just an interesting issue. I mean, how do we how do we we strike that balance, right? Even is it's the access uh, and, and blocking the access is, is part of the issue, but this is just an overall safety issue, also, isn't it?
4: Totally. I mean, I I just live downtown and I see people all the time just zipping on the sidewalks, and and um, you know I'm grateful that they're getting to where they need to go and they're having a little fun while they're doing it. But I also always say too, like I'm going to have to watch somebody crash, and I don't want to see that. Um, just a joke that we have with me and some of my friends like we're we don't want to watch somebody crack their head open falling off a scooter um so just yeah just be careful um I we were talking off air you know using those bike lanes when you can because I totally get that it would also be kind of hard to ride in traffic as well but it's just as hard just as dangerous on the sidewalks too so I I don't know what that I don't know what the answer to that well, is. Well, I
1: am just so interested because of your experience, uh it'd be so easy just to say we ban the scooters. But that's not what you're saying at all. That's no, why this is not so at all. interesting.
4: Yeah, I think they're a great um thing for people to use to get around and I think anything we can do to help people not have to drive cars um is a really great thing. Um but just with any new technology, any new infrastructure there's going to be a learning curve and we have to be humble enough to say all right this is working this isn't working what do we need to do to make adjustments and then as a society be willing to you know take that criticism maybe take some of those changes and move forward with them and and that is the only way that we're ever going to in any you know any realm the only way we're going to advance and get better as a society is being willing to make some changes.
1: Yeah, certainly that's what seems to be needed. When you talk about the transportation, that that's, that short distance is just so absolutely critical for us. Totally. But uh, this, this is the balance, I guess, we're looking at, right? Yeah. We want to be able to have that access. We want to be able to have that last mile and that transportation for people. We need to not ruin it. We can have
4: nice things. (laughs) That is true. Uh, Just be smart about it. Well
1: I I have to mention because you brought up the question our our great producers here uh, at the station have given us the email address if someone does have a complaint or question.
4: Well
0: look at that.
1: It just materializes that's what happens with the great people here at KSL. If you do have a concern a a complaint uh, send that email to dockless d-o-c-k-l-e-s-s at slc that's all the right, website. All well, right, so, I yeah.
4: am going to write that down. So, don't I stop
1: the Twitter seen. shame, though. Oh, never. But also, the next email is to yes. Salt Lake City. Yes. Thank you for being with us. So no, happy to have you. thanks for having me. Shelby Hinson, as always, it's great to talk with you. Stay tuned. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Ms. Michelle Quist to talk about civility.
2: A gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought,
6: And there was the police once again.
2: You can binge all of the episodes of Hope and Darkness on kslpodcasts.com
0: or wherever you get your podcasts.
5: Inside Sources. Inside Sources. On KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160
1: AM. Welcome back to Inside Sources. I'm Jason Perry. Joined by Margaret Lyoncotti and Natalie Tippett, We're glad to have you with us. We're going to continue with a very important topic uh, that really we should be talking about more in politics. And at the Hinckley Institute, we are, of course, completely nonpartisan, but we do talk about this quite regularly with our students. The topic is civility, Uh, civility in politics and civility in life. And we are so happy to have uh, one of our great friends with us, Michelle Quist, who recently wrote a really great column about this very, very issue. Michelle, thank you for being with us today.
2: You're welcome. Good to be here, Jason.
1: Well, we have to just jump into it. Let's talk about civility. What is it in your mind? And maybe talk about why we are not so great at it these days, particularly in (laughs) politics.
2: Well, I like that you said civility in life. You know, we, we get so busy. We're, we're just living our lives. We've got things to do. And we're busy, and, and people get in the way, right? And we forget that they're people, too, and they're just living their lives, and they're busy, and they've got things to do, and we're probably in their way just as much as they're in our way. Um, civility, to me, is, is common decency, right? It's respect for other people and awareness that life isn't about me, you know, it's it, it it involves more than just me. I mean, that that seems so basic, but that's not really our default. Our default is, oh my gosh, I've got to do this. I have things to do, and you know, everybody in my way needs to kind of move along. Um, yeah. Civility in politics is the same idea, right? It's aware. It's an awareness that other people have ideas and values and. Um, personal experiences that they have lived that fashion and that um, shape the way that they think about political issues and about events and, and ideas in the political sphere that affect their lives. And I think civility means, you know, just stopping and realizing that other people have the same types of values and that Maybe it might make a difference for us to stop and listen and maybe learn where they're coming from before we lash out or before we judge. You know, it's such a quintessential put yourself in their shoes. Um, Honestly, we we, we really need to stop and and do that more.
1: Well, it's such a a great point and a great perspective. It seems like oftentimes... Uh, people view kind of the, the arguments as someone must win, and if I didn't win, I've, I've lost in a significant way, and therefore it's a zero-sum game all the time. And so they think that being civil means being timid or giving up or not right. being passionate in your arguments.
6: Right.
2: And that's not the case, definitely. And, and in fact, we, in the political sphere, end up using civility as a weapon against the other side. You know, well, you know, we, we try to downgrade their their arguments or even what they're saying by saying, oh, well, you're not being civil, so now we don't have to listen. Um, c- civility is not it, – it doesn't mean being, being meek, um, even though, I, you know, I say that. Being meek isn't necessarily bad, but it, it doesn't mean having passion or having an argument. Or, you, you know, you can be civil and have an argument. You can be civil and not agree with somebody else. You just, you just have to do it civilly and with respect and, and honestly with kindness.
1: Well, let's, keep, let's put this in a political perspective for just a moment because I think this is so interesting because you kind of talk about the civility as a, a weapon. Uh, because sometimes when you're talking about campaigns, for example, uh, when one side goes very negative – uh, the other side may, may sometimes feel like I'm going to have that civil campaign, because we almost always start out that way, saying we're going to run a respectful, civil campaign, and then the numbers start right. you know, going go the other person's way, and it becomes a little less civil. How, how do we, in your mind, kind of change that, that view so that it's not seen as it is such a weakness that I need to exploit it?
2: Um, I mean, losing is hard, right? So you you forget your values, you forget how you want to be and how you want to run a campaign. Um, I think it's important to have good people around you who are reminding you that it's not about winning at all costs, but about staying true to your principles. And, um, you know, if you start to see the numbers go down, the solution isn't, you know, like you said, to, to send something out like the temple mailer, you know, everybody remembers that. The solution is to, is to make sure that you're communicating your message. And to, um, you know, to, to do it in a valid way. Um, it's hard. Politics is hard to, to stay out of the nasty because, like I said at the beginning, it's so easy to go there. It's kind of our default. Our default is not to look at other people as important as we are, right? So if we, if we switch that in the political sphere, if we, remember that the other campaign, the other side, the other candidate is just as passionate and just as, um, you know, worthy to have their own, you know, their own side and their own arguments, then it, it, it's just a reminder that the solution isn't to go negative. The solution is to make sure you're, you're getting your message out there and to communicate your message better.
0: Michelle, I love how you made this so personal. A lot of times when we talk about civility and politics, we just think about what other people need to do better. But you really spoke from the heart and from a personal perspective in your column, and you talked about some lessons you learned at a dinner recently, and you talked about learning how to listen without judgment, listen without formulating a response. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and how you personally are just work, you know, trying to find ways to be more civil?
2: you know there's there's no outlook on civility that isn't about yourself, and if you're talking about civility and, and blaming somebody else for it, then you're doing it wrong because the whole idea around civility is that you monitor your own behavior so I went to this you know this 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 evening this dinner that that was um attempting to bring out this you know to help people have conversations and you know it started with art. Uh, It was around the principle of immigration, which is typically a difficult conversation to talk about with somebody else of a differing view. And so that was the point of it, is that we're gonna try to bring a hard subject, bring people together of different views, and help them to realize that civility in this conversation is able and that it's a better way. And so they started with art and they, you know, we shared a meal together, you know, you break bread and you you kind of stop for a minute, right? And you realize that that these are like I said, these are people that have their own stories. There was an immigrant from Mexico. She was one of the artists and, and, you know, her, obviously her, you know, uh, outlook on immigration is going to be different from, from other people. And um, just the, the, just the act of being together, sitting at a table and, you know, passing the chicken, right. And, and reaching for the butter and um, sharing the stories of where our families came from and, and, oh, you're the head of, you know, you're a former head of the Democrat Party. And, you know, I'm a Republican from Utah. You know, here's the chicken. And also, I really loved your story about your family immigrating from Germany. And I understand that that might affect how you look at immigration. Uh, it, it was just a great opportunity to stop and listen. And, and I think if we if we don't do anything but learn how to listen better than Everything could be improved. You know the the civility in our daily lives, the civility in the political sphere. If we stop and listen, and I love this 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 organization had a pamphlet and it quoted the Stephen Covey quote about um, you know listening isn't listening when you're, this isn't the quote. I'm paraphrasing obviously. Listening isn't listening when you're just thinking of what you're going to reply. You know that's not listening. Listening is is clearing your mind and trying to hear what the other person is saying and where they're coming from. And, um, you know, the, the, the ability and the opportunity to, to do that Tuesday evening um, was really just a reminder that civility starts with me. And, you know, I've had columns that aren't so civil, you know, and yeah. I, I'm the first to admit that, right? And um, I could be better and I could do it a better way Wherein my message is received better, so that I don't, you know, I don't kick myself in the in the rear end because I'm not being civil. You know, it 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 stops the conversation. Well, Michelle, you can learn to do it in a better way. It's better.
1: Well, Michelle, this is such a great reminder and is something we all need to think about. And it does start with us, it does have a root in listening. And this is a great reminder for you to give to us. I'm so glad you attended that dinner. Thank you for being with us today. We're glad to have Michelle Quest with us. Inside Sources,
5: Inside Sources
1: on KSL News Radio. Welcome back to Inside Sources. I'm Jason Perry. Hosting today with Morgan lyon and Natalie Tippis. Before we get into our next segment, we would like to hear from Robin Garfield on uh, an update on this crash and near Bryce Canyon.
0: All right, we do have some uh, new information on this. It's just come across from an email uh, from the from the Utah Highway Patrol. There are uh, three people in critical condition, six in serious condition, three people in fair condition, and like we said earlier, four have passed away from this crash. And a quote from Garfield County Commissioner Leland Pollock, who said, this is pretty overwhelming for a little county of 49,000 people. Uh, that's the latest update. We'll have more, I'm sure, at the bottom of the hour news.
1: All right. Thank you for keeping us uh, in the loop on this, and we'll continue to do so. I'd like to turn our attention to... What just happened this last week in the special session, not very often you get to have a chance to talk to the person that's sort of leading the effort on medical marijuana in the state, both uh, in terms of what's happening now and the future of it. And today we're fortunate to have Senator Evan Vickers with us, uh, who represents District 28 from Southern Utah, also the majority leader in our Utah State Senate. Senator Vickers, thank you for being with us today.
6: Oh, thanks for having me. I I just listened to that news story. That's close to home down here. I wasn't aware of that, so that's sad.
1: Yeah, well, there may be something there in your neck of the woods you can do there as well, as I know you always do. Well, let's talk about this special session for a moment. Uh, Not only are are you just such an influential person in our Senate, but you're also a pharmacist, which means you have a special insight into this issue of medical marijuana. Maybe take a moment and tell us what happened in this special session, uh, what changes you were trying to make, and what you were able to accomplish.
6: Well, in the process of implementing, uh, you know, a really complicated process like this, and we recognized when we did, when Speaker Hughes and and I worked on, along with many others, on HB 3001 back in the special session in December to implement the, this new policy. We took a conscious effort to go down a controlled medical path where a patient is receiving medicine, and it's being treated like medicine, and they're being administered through medical professionals and others. So, in the process of implementing that, we recognized that there were going to be things that uh, we'd have to tweak a little bit. It's a, it's new. It's gray. It's Technically, it's an illegal substance, so there's all sorts of, you know, issues that we knew that were going to come up. And so we identified a few that were very time-sensitive that needed to be addressed now in order to make sure that the implementation process is going smoothly. And we promised, you know, we made a promise to the public that we would have cannabis medication available for patients uh, by March of 2020. And so there's some timely issues that need to be addressed to work through that. And that's, that's really what the impetus behind the special session bill was addressing some of those issues.
1: Well, part of this uh, effort to address those, those issues was increasing the number of uh, private pharmacy licenses. So th- you increased the total to 14. Uh, how is that going to work now as opposed to what the original plan was in legislation on this central fill model?
6: Yeah, so the the original model had seven retail pharmacies and then a central fill pharmacy, and that was unique. It was was different than anywhere else in the country. It's a model that really works in the pharmacy world. It uh, is used quite often, and it works very well. uh, But in order to do that, you have to have a pickup point. Now, if we were able to use... Uh, retail pharmacies in the in the rural areas to, as the pickup point it will work seamlessly, but unfortunately, because of the nature of cannabis being a class one narcotic, it's deemed. It's deemed unlawful to do that, so we couldn't. We had to go to another option, and we looked at using local health departments simply as a pickup, not as a dispensary or not as a pharmacy, but a place where a patient could go and pick up their medication that was filled at this central fill location, probably in the Wasatch Front, and then couriered out to those rural areas. Um, There were some complications with that and some things at the end of the day. We decided the best way in order to minimize risk and uh, move forward is to eliminate that component and increase the number of retail cannabis pharmacies. And so when you do that, then you start looking, okay, what's the right number? And you look at other states and see what kind of uh, numbers they've used, try to compare to states. and. That are like-minded in the way we're implementing this, specifically Connecticut, uh, Minnesota, and Pennsylvania, and try to determine what, how many pharmacies you need to take care of the public. And they, were, you know, quite frankly, if you use those data, it marks out to about twelve. You can kind of validate; you can really validate fourteen. And so there was a lot of difference of opinion on that between primarily between the Senate and the House, um, myself and maybe leadership in the House and some other members of the, the body of the House, the, some that wanted to have a lot more. And I, I, I felt uncomfortable doing that because I think that a number of them could fail. So I think we found a really nice balance where we allow 14 pharmacies to be implemented in the first year, You know, eight at, at first by March and then six later on in the year and then set up a process whereby we can determine if market conditions warrant uh, adding additional pharmacies, then there's a process for Department of Agriculture and Department of Health to go through a process to determine that and make those recommendations.
2: Senator, you said that this is such a complex and evolving issue. Do you feel like the legislature was able to tackle... All of the time-sensitive things in time for the March first deadline, or do you think the legislature is going to have to take this up to address a few more issues related to, to it?
6: Well, so there's definitely other issues we've got to deal with. I think the time-sensitive issues we've dealt with, and I think it'll go forward. Now, I've asked, you know, I was asked the question, or so we've issued, or and we technically haven't issued the license. Uh, for the growers, but there's eight companies that have been identified to receive those licenses once they check all the boxes. And I was asked the question a couple of times, will all eight of those cultivators have product available for patients on March 1st? The answer is no, but we will have, you know, some of them, three to five that will be up and running and have um, product available. Now, all eight will be licensed by then and they will have product growing uh, some of them will be in the process of getting it ready for, for market. But we will have enough product available on March 1st uh, based on what we're seeing right now to have adequate supply for the patients that will be available on March 1st. It's one of those things It's going to take a while to ramp up patients, too, because you have to go through a you know sign-up process and get a card and all those things. So won't, you, you won't magically, thousands and thousands of patients just magically appear on day one. It'll be a, a much smaller number that'll ramp up over time. The other thing to consider, is the fact that cannabis medication has a pretty high failure rate, uh, and you can validate this through the FDA trials of Sativex and Epidiolex that are on the, you know, that are either on the market or going through trials now, and also our own uh, uh, HB105, which implemented using CBD for seizure patients, you see a forty-five to fifty percent failure rate, which is not uncommon in a drug like this. But you, what it means is, is you'll have patients that come on and try it. But then it doesn't work real well for them, so they'll stop. Then others will stay on it. So you'll have have a lot of coming and going with your patient population.
1: Well, Senator Evan Vickers, uh, you've been on the front lines of this one, and we can't tell you how much we appreciate you breaking this one down for us today. And uh, we'll stay in touch with you on this very important issue. Thank you very much. No, thank you. We'll see you. Thank you for being with us on Inside Sources. Please stay tuned. Coming back with Jeff Burningham, who's running for governor. Inside sources.
5: Inside sources.
1: on KSL News Radio, 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. Welcome back to Inside Sources. I'm Jason Perry with the Hinckley Institute of Politics, joined by Morgan Lyon, and Natalie Tippett. It's been an interesting day full of politics, and our next guest. Uh, We're very excited to have a chance to introduce uh, many people having a chance to meet him. Uh, Jeff Burningham, running for governor. We just love talking about 2020, a great candidate in this particular race. Uh, Jeff, thanks for joining us today.
3: Thanks for having me on, Jason. Glad to be here.
1: Well, let's just start right in, because uh, we're, some of us are having a chance to get to know you now, uh, and you are covering the state, getting to know people. I just want to start with kind of the high level, because, of course, we're starting to see your, ad, your, your uh, advertisements, The things are coming as mailers, and really, I guess the, the big idea is it's game-changing leadership. That's kind of how you're approaching this, this campaign with the tagline. Explain what that is.
3: Yeah, I'm excited uh, to run. It's such an exciting time in Utah. And my wife and I have four children. We've raised our children here in Provo. And I'm running because I think we need an innovative outsider to bring game-changing leadership to capture uh, once-in-a-generation opportunity that's before us. And so in my opinion, game-changing leadership is about Number one, changing the way our state government thinks. It's not just about systems and technology, but it's about the hearts and minds of every individual that works in state government. I think politicians are enablers of the systems that have made them, and entrepreneurs are disruptors that make bigger and greater things possible for all. So that's number one. Number two, I think we need to serve – the taxpayer in a whole new, better way. And there are, I have a lot of ideas ahead of user design in the cabinet, et cetera. I think that's critical. And then lastly, no more kicking the can down the road for political gain. We need to do the right things right now. Utah is growing. There is a dynamism in the state that is exciting. We're the youngest state in the country. But we need to prepare for the future. And that means bold leadership. That means Uh, taking a position, it means game-changing leadership.
1: When you start looking at the future growth prospects of the state and uh, some of the initiatives you might put forward, what's at that top of the list? What would you want to tackle first?
3: Yeah, number one, we need to keep the economy revving. You know, we're, we have, our entrepreneurs have been on a tear. They've created tens of thousands of jobs over the last decade for us here in Utah The people in Utah are the secret sauce of what's occurring here. They're the special part of what's occurring here. And we need to make sure that our economy continues to rev because our children and grandchildren are staying here. There's a diverse economy now, so they're choosing to stay, and we want good jobs for them to graduate into that's why i think it's important that we elect a a job creating entrepreneur my background is in entrepreneurship as you know jason and i've helped create over four thousand jobs here in utah and i think that's the first critical thing getting government out of the way making sure that the economy continues to rev secondly i think it's time to modernize education there is a mismatch between what our children are learning and what the job opportunities are out there in the market. I think Utah has a will and desire to do this. It's important that we deregulate education. I think it's time to bring educational savings accounts and other innovative ideas to education here in the state. And then lastly, uh, number three, again, just a smart plan for growth a smart plan for the quality of life issues that we're facing. Not all growth is good, so we need to be wise about how we grow, and we need a plan that ensures that our children and grandchildren have the same opportunities we do, that they're able to get around the state, that they have clean air to breathe, that it's affordable to live here in Utah. And in order to do that, I think we need a a smart, bold plan.
0: Mr. Burningham, we, we just had Michelle Quist on the show talking about civility in politics and really talking about how each of it's the responsibility of each of us to be civil. Tell us about how you plan to run a civil and a clean campaign. And as Michelle said, sometimes it gets hard when things get tough, when things get competitive. So I want to hear your plans to be civil with the political campaign ahead.
3: Yeah, I love that question. I've actually I don't think I've ever been asked that. And I love it because we're a civil society here in Utah. I mean, we believe in people. We believe in loving people. And I think that that's critical, even in politics. I think that every person that runs for political office deserves respect. I have never run for political office before. I did not understand how difficult this is, how excruciating it can be. Any candidate who puts their name out there, who runs a clean race for good reason, I think should be respected and should be kind to. So I'm going to run an aggressive and positive campaign throughout the entire state. I've already been to all 29 counties here in Utah, and I'll be back And I think it's critical that we run a clean campaign. We do need to point out differences. I mean, we do. I think it is time for a robust debate. That is something that's important in this gubernatorial race. We need a robust debate so that we can ensure our future and pick the best possible candidate. But I think that can be done in a civil and kind way. And I am definitely committed to running a positive campaign.
1: Let me ask about your approach for a moment uh, about uh, being someone that's not been part of the political establishment. Uh, just kind of your arguments as to why uh, that is maybe the, the better approach in this particular election. Someone that's been investing in businesses, growing the economy, as opposed to um, you know, someone who's been uh, in, involved in the political process for some time.
3: We're on the verge of driverless cars in the private sector. Yet you and I, Jason, have to go stand in line at the DMV for... My wife just did this to get our 15-year-old son his learner's permit. She stayed for an hour and a half and then actually got sent home because of a technicality. She didn't have the exact piece of documentation she needed. The point is there's a mismatch. As you look out in the world, as the world modernizes, as it moves faster and faster, government actually moves slower and slower because it gets bigger and bigger. And so I think there's a mismatch... It's very hard to innovate within the inside of a bureaucratic system. I think we need an outsider, an innovative outsider, someone with a track record of creating jobs, a job-creating entrepreneur that can bring new and fresh ideas to this race and to this state. And I think that's critical. Um, Obviously, it's been great for Utah. Our economy has been on a tear, and it's been awesome. But our state government has been growing faster than our economy. It's grown over 30% in the last five years. and. Uh, I don't think it needs to be that way. I think we need a slim and limited government. I think we need a flexible government and a government that is more responsive to the taxpayer. That type of innovation is really hard to do from the inside. I think it's critical that we uh, elect an outsider. and, And really, that's why
1: I'm in this race. All right. Very good insight there, and we're glad to have a chance to get to know even better. Now I know we'll see a lot more from you as we have a chance to hear more from Jeff Burningham, 2020 candidate for governor. Thank you for being with us. Thanks, guys. Good to talk to you. Stay tuned when we come back. Sophia DeCaro, our great representative, talking about alcohol beverage control, and of course, ever important need for more women in office. Inside sources. Inside sources on KSL News Radio. Welcome back to Inside Sources. I'm Jason Perry with the Hinckley Institute of Politics. I'm glad to be with you today, particularly to have Morgan Lioncotti and Natalie Tippetts uh, with us as well. Broad range of topics today, but we're very excited to have our, our last guest with us on this particular program today, Representative Sophia DeCaro. We're so glad to have her with oh, us. Uh, Sophia, thanks for joining us today because we've got a lot to talk about.
2: Of course. I'm happy to be with you all today. Hi, Natalie and Morgan. How are you all?
0: <laughs> Uh, We're great. Great to have you, Sophia. All Thanks the friends
1: back on. together, which is why we can ask anything we want, right, Sophia? That's
0: right. I'm uh, let,
1: ready. Let's talk with the, uh, about the special session that just occurred, because there was a small issue with uh, timing and the ability to get 4.0% alcohol into the state of Utah. But this is not just bridging your role as a legislator, but your role as a member of the DABC. Please talk about what the problem was that you needed to resolve.
2: Yes, yeah, so, and I should uh, I should mention too that I'm currently not serving in the legislature, but I am uh, serving in the commissioner on DABC. And, and it might be helpful just to provide a little bit of backdrop uh, about the issue. If we rewind back to last year, there was an issue of supply and demand and certain market forces that left Utah as the only state in demand for a lower alcohol content beer production. Uh, in other words, the national breweries and beer manufacturers were they're facing a reality of whether or not it makes sense to continue producing special batches of beer, such as the 3.2 beer for, for Utah. So that was kind of the precursor for the state to adjust the legal alcohol content from 3.2 by weight to 4% by weight, um, and made it effective November 1st of this year. And so now that we have this change moving forward, Certain products between the three, two, and, and 4% are transitioning from state stores and warehouses and whatnot to, to the open market. And so what this bill did, HB1002, it really addressed um, that tight transition period over which that switch was to occur for retailers. So uh, basically all retailers had just one day to obtain their products and uh, from the distributors and, and make that available on their shelves. And this bill provided a one-week time flexibility for retailers to obtain the product, uh, to store the product, but not sell the product until November the no- November 1st effective date. So, um, basically, you know, it helped level the playing field for rural retailers who might have to travel long distances to get to the product and get them to market by the effective date. And so... Um, really, it was just to address that, that transition issue, and it was essentially a commerce bill.
1: I well, appreciate the insight on that. And by the way, I'm always probably going to call you a representative, so that title <laughs> sticks with you. But you did take care of one other very important problem. People were not singing enough karaoke because they couldn't have alcohol in these karaoke places. Is that right?
2: Yeah, so it was, it was kind of a technical issue. Not, you know, they're all technical on it comes to this uh this topic it seems but basically you know maybe it's helpful too to just paint the picture of our governance structure the legislature actually establishes all of the alcohol laws for our state of course and uh the commission is really the entity that regulates those laws and uh you know helps the department implement what they need to implement we've got great leadership in the south there as our executive director and uh, commission made up of seven commissioners, but um, we really are there to help implement the laws that are made by the legislature and to, uh, you know, navigate the parameters that are set for us. So that's kind of the backdrop, but uh, in essence, there was a definition of recreational activities that was very narrow in statutes. And, um, and I think that was maybe meant by design, but it listed out several options, such as billiards and sporting events, and um, but it also included a clause that said or substantially similar to one of those listed items. And um, so the the substantially similar language opened up the opportunity for us to consider a request for for axe throwing. If you remember the axe throwing. Uh, application that came in that made a lot of coverage um, and it it also opened up the door for us to evaluate things like like this karaoke request but uh, the, the act of throwing one I should mention was ultimately approved by the commission back when uh, it came forward but you fast forward then to early spring and we had a request from the karaoke a, a karaoke establishment that fell under those same statutory parameters. And uh, in the meantime, the legislature was in session. They had actually stricken the language substantially similar, uh, which then limited us back to the itemized list. And so because of that, um, the impact entities came back to the commission. We made some modifications. Uh, they made some modifications to their establishment, uh, putting you know, pool tables in and things like that to better fit under what was statutorily allowed. Uh, and that ultimately allowed us to approve it. So at the end of the day, it was approved. But yes, it, it ended up uh, causing a lot of discussion.
0: Sophia, with just the last couple of minutes we have, I want to switch gears and talk about something that I know is near and dear to your heart, and that is finding ways to elect more women. Can you tell us why this is an issue you're so passionate about and some of the work you are doing to mentor and to train women so that they can get elected?
2: Yes, it's it's, uh, it's important. I think to to a lot. I think the Democrats do a very great job in electing women, and and the Republican Party is currently trying to put more efforts in improving that as well. Um, but it's just it's just important. I think you know with women making up more than half or half of the population, more than half of the labor force, uh, that that uh, that there's more of a, a voice there. Uh, I know that uh, one boards I sit on is the Utah Women's Leadership Institute, and former Senator Pat Jones uh, runs that organization. She's been doing a phenomenal job with Nicole Carpenter over there, uh, just getting people to you know, take their political development series and, and train them on how to run for office. And I encourage people who are interested to look at that, too. And, and uh, it is a nonpartisan organization, uh, so that's important to mention, but it's it, uh like you said very near and dear to my heart there's a lot of things that the organization is doing as well to um, in the private sector uh, asking companies to take the elevate her challenge which just helps support women and senior positions and help uh, helps retain women in their organizations and encourages them if they decide to run for office to to be amenable in that conversation but but yes uh, very important
0: Thanks, Sophia. I know you work so hard on this and I am one of the beneficiaries of your mentorship and we all appreciate your leadership. You're one of those women that somehow just does it all.
2: Oh well thank you. You're 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 the same. You're up there as well. I and same with Natalie. I encourage I might have to try to recruit both of you one day. So watch out, Jason. Hey,
1: okay, please do. We're so glad to have you. Always welcome Sophia DeCaro. Thank you for your efforts.
2: Thank you.